Our God is a God of unlimited light, and he calls us to share that light with others. As we give it away generously, in a paradoxical way, we get brighter. We are blessed by being a blessing, giving time and talents, attention and connection, compassion and kindness, and grace in love. It takes a shift in focus off of ourselves and onto others. It can't be faked or fabricated. It has to be desired. It fills us up, and we can't help but spill Jesus onto those around us. So what would happen if we intentionally pursued a life of living generously? And what would it take to be known for our genuine and extravagant generosity? God has called us to live a life more abundant. And that truly comes when we become generous. Good morning. Must be an early game today. Our 11 o'clock service will probably be pretty thin. So it is good to have you here. Uh, what other service you normally come to, it's good to have you here in this one. And those of you in Skagit, so glad that you're with us today uh, with Pastor Brian and the team down there, as well as those of you at the Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, and those of you with the live stream right now joining us uh, wherever you are online. Uh, this is the fifth week of our series, a series called Generosity or Generous. And uh, one of the things that I've heard in this series is people saying, wow, I never, never knew that about Dorcas, never knew that about Barnabas, hearing all this knowledge about these individuals that are kind of obscure characters in Scripture. And while I've enjoyed that and Kip has enjoyed uh, teaching those things, um, our goal in this series is not just to increase our knowledge about obscure characters in Scripture. We want you to know that, but our true goal is that we would grow in our generous nature, that we would become more generous, that we would have a higher GQ, and we're not talking about fashion since there. It's our generosity quotient would be ticking upward, and I wonder if you were honest with yourself after five weeks of hearing these things in different facets, would you say or would others say that yes, we've moved the needle a bit, a, a notch or two, to becoming more and more generous? Because we, while it's wonderful to hear about Tabitha and Dorcas' beautiful gazelle of Joppa, how much better to follow her example in being generous and always doing good and helping others. While it's great to hear about Mephibosheth and the grace that he received to recognize that we ourselves are Mephibosheth, that grace has been lavished on us and thus we ought to be dispensers of grace. It's amazing to hear about Joseph, this Levite from Cyprus, who is also Barnabas, but how much better if we could become sons and daughters of encouragement as well. And to know about Stephen and what he went through, but to recognize that we have been forgiven by Christ and as we have been forgiven, so we ought to forgive. That's our goal. And the goal is to follow the example of the most generous person who ever walked the face of the planet, our Lord, our leader, our Savior, in this verse that we've seen several times in the series, and we pulled it out of context. I know we've cherry-picked this verse today. I hope to remedy that. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich, that Jesus who has all things, pours himself out generously so that we might receive, so that we would be the recipients of unimaginable grace. We would be recipients of eternal encouragement, that we would be recipients of his generosity, that we would be recipients of forgiveness. Thus, we ought to be the most generous people because we have received such lavish generosity from the Lord. In Matthew chapter 10, 
verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, freely you have received, freely give. And I think we could change out the words. I'm not trying to alter scripture. Please hang in there. But we can say, generously we have received, generously we should give. That that would be uh, the, the growth pattern, the trajectory, the trend of our lives to becoming more and more generous, that our GQ would continue to increase. I've been, um, in the last few weeks, going through a classic by A.W. Tozer, a little book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's basically just going through attributes of God. I think he lists off 19 or 20 of them in these tiny little chapters. It's an amazing book. It's been around forever. But it's interesting, when you talk about the attributes of God, the, these character traits, there are some that are, that are common. They're like on every list that's ever listed up here. You know, omnipotence, the all-powerful nature of God. That's amazing when you begin to explore that. His omniscience. And, and while we would, might see this as, as negative, it's really very positive, that, that God will never, ever learn anything new. Because he already knows. He is the divine know-it-all in a beautiful way. You will never hear God say, I had never heard of that before. That's interesting. That his transcendence, that he goes beyond, he's outside of our boundaries, outside of our borders, he is above all of that. The infinitude of God, not just the fact that he is wholly uncreated, that he has no beginning and no end, but in capacity, he's completely unlimited, and this whole idea of him being immutable, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Again, God can't grow, he can't improve, he can't get better because he already is. Likewise, he can't diminish, he can't weaken, he can't get worse. He is the same. He is unchanging. And there's a couple of attributes of God that I've never seen on a list, and so I'm putting them on our list today. Magnanimous and munificent. Full disclosure, I had never heard this word until about a month ago when I started in on this series and studying it. I'd never heard the word munificent. Not to be... Uh, to, not to be uh, mistaken with Maleficent, which is Disney's mistress of evil. That's not what we're talking about here. This magnanimous God who is munificent. Say munificent. munificent. What a beautiful word. You can impress all your friends with this. This is what magnanimous and munificent means. Lavishly generous, more than usual or necessary. That's our God. That he is munificent, he is lavish in his generosity. In, in, uh, in Timothy it says that, that he has generously given us all things for our enjoyment. He just pours out his blessings and his goodness upon us. And when we become more generous, when we become munificent, we become more like our father in heaven, like father, like daughter, like father, like son. We become more like God, more Christ-like as we grow in our generosity. Now in this series, Generous, Spending seven weeks in a series called Generous, I've said multiple times, very little of this series has to do with the monetary. This is not a capital campaign. There are no pledge cards. There's no thermometer telling us how far we've gone in our goal. None of that. Because I wanted us to grow in our thinking, our understanding, and our application of generosity. All of these different aspects and facets we've seen. Others that we won't even have time. To, to be generous in our kindness, to be generous in compassion, to be generous in gratitude, to be generous with our time, to be generous with our emotional engagement and availability. These areas of generosity beyond just the monetary. Repeatedly I've said, very little of this series will be about money. Now we touched on it just briefly with Barnabas when he sold some land and gave it. That was it. But very little 
would be about the, the money side, the financial side of generosity. Today is that very little day. <laughs> and I am so glad that you are here. I'm so glad that you're here for this one. Uh, we are gonna, we've been in the series looking at different individuals. Today we're going to look at a group and some groups of individuals, multiple different groups of individuals, and we're going to spend the majority of our time in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 with a little bit in chapter 9. If you want to turn there in your Bible or your tablet, your devices, here's what I would also ask. I would absolutely love if in part of response of today's uh, time together, that this week on your own, that you would read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in its entirety. It is a beautiful passage. It will take what I say today to the next level. It'll fill in the blanks. I'm asking you this week sometime, read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in its entirety. In the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, thus the name. Corinth was a town in southern part of Greece. It was a port town. It was a beautiful town, a big town, very metropolitan town, very uh, economically prosperous town, very pagan town, but there was a body of believers there in Corinth. And in this letter, in the section we're going to look at in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he tells them about their brothers and sisters to the north in an area, a province called Macedonia. And some uh, followers, some groups of, of Christ followers, some churches in Macedonia, and again, on your own, if you want to read about this, you can go to Acts chapter 16 and 17. Paul, in his missionary journey, had this vision. It was a man from Macedonia saying, Paul, come and help us. So he and Silas went up there. They go to Philippi. Some amazing things happen there, and they start a church. They go to Thessalonica. Some amazing things happen there, and they start a church. They go to Berea. Some amazing things happen. And then later, he would come back and write letters. The book of Philippians is to this church in Philippi. First and second Thessalonians is to this church in Thessalonica, and then not a letter that we have anyway uh, to the Bereans. One more piece of context, and then we'll get into it. In the uh, first century, there was a, a massive famine in Jerusalem, and, uh, and it caused some economic downturn, and also uh, the followers of Christ were being persecuted directly uh, and, and uh, you know, with, with great uh, ferocity. So the people in Jerusalem were struggling. There'd been a famine, they were financially hurting, and they were dealing with all this persecution. So Paul, in his journeys, goes around to these churches, these Greek churches, these Gentile churches, and he takes up collections. He gets money for the, the brothers and sisters in, in Jerusalem. It's interesting, Paul never goes around begging for money for himself. In fact, he, he has a job so that he doesn't have to ask for money. But he has no problem raising funds for these folks in Jerusalem who are under in very difficult times. And so he's talking to this church in Corinth, and he's pointing their attention to their brothers and sisters in the north in Macedonia. Are we all clear? Yeah. Let's get into it. Chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers, brothers in Corinth, and sisters, of course, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. He said, I want to tell you, I want you to hear this. I want you to, to hear what's going on in Macedonia. I want you to know about your brothers and sisters because I think it's going to inspire you and encourage you, maybe challenge you, and you can learn from it. And he talks about this grace. And it's interesting, in this passage that we're going to look at, over and over again, when it comes to generosity, he keeps referring to grace. And the reality is this, when we're talking about biblical, godly generosity, that grace is the foundation of generosity. There's a lot of times that people may give or be generous for other reasons. There are times that people give or are generous because of guilt. 
or because of a duty, an obligation. They feel like they owe it or they have to repay. It might be because they feel um, coerced or manipulated. It might be because of the recognition they will receive, and so it's actually pride uh, motivated. It might be because of what they get back, so there might be some kind of a a greed aspect of it. But he says the the true godly uh, generosity that we're talking about, it's motivated by this grace, and they have this grace. And then he talks about these churches in Macedonia, and it's amazing what he says about them. Verse 2. He says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. Now look at these these, uh, descriptions. Trial, poverty, joy. I want to sing you a little song. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell? Okay, you know what I'm talking about here. And look at the adjectives. Severe trial. Extreme poverty, overflowing joy. He's not just talking about little bits. He's talking about on, on the, the scale way out there on the edge of it all. This, this, this severe trial, I mean, again, if you read in Acts, these churches started under persecution and trial. Paul and Silas go to Philippi. They are flogged, they are whipped, they are beaten, they are put in prison, they are put in the stocks in the, in the inner sanction, in the inner chamber of the jail. And then there was that whole midnight earthquake jailhouse rock thing that happened. But it started off with persecution and trial. And from there, when they finally got released, they go to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, there's this mob that, that rises up and there's this riot. And so it gets so volatile, they have to escape under the cover of night. And then they go to Berea, and people from Thessalonica hear that they're in Berea, so they send some people over there to stir up the crowds and get them all riled up. These churches started with persecution, and the trials continue on. Just because Paul and Silas are gone doesn't mean that the persecution is gone. So they're living under this as followers of Christ. And because of that, there is no doubt some uh, economic ramifications you know, they're, they're being blackballed, and, and their business are being are taken you know, out, and, and vandals, all these things. And so they have all of this poverty that they've got going and, and all these trials. And then it talks about that they have joy in the midst of it. And not just like dig deep and try and put a smile on and say, Jesus loves me. Overflowing joy. Not scraping the bottom and trying to dig up a little joy. It's just overflowing in their life. And in addition to that, the result of their trials, their poverty, this joy that's welling up within them, it wells up in rich, this abundant generosity. This is like mind-boggling. Here they are in the most difficult circumstances that we couldn't even imagine. We'd never seen anything like it, at least not in the United States. And what it means to them economically. And yet they are just so filled with joy and they become unbelievably generous. I don't know if you've ever gone to maybe a third world country and you've seen this. You've seen people that are are living in conditions that by U.S. standards are so subpar that they have very little. And yet there's just this joy about them and, and this generosity that comes. And you're like, how is this possible? Uh, several years ago, my mom and my brother and I went to Tanzania, and we were off uh, going out into this, this village way out in the, in the, in the sticks of, of Tanzania. And on the way out there, uh, Ben Schuler was our, our, our uh, missionary guide, and he says, now this, this village is very excited that people from the United States are coming to visit them, and this village is very poor, um, 
In fact, if I remember right, they didn't have electricity or running water in this village, not at least not in the homes. He said, and they're very poor, but they're so excited that you're coming here. Um, they actually, as a village, have decided to butcher a goat for this big feast. They rarely eat meat because they just don't have a lot. But for today, they've butchered a goat, and they will be offended if you don't eat their goat. Now, I've eaten goat in Haiti. It's, goat's not bad. So I was like, no problem. And he says, no, one other thing. They cook every part of the goat. Nothing is wasted, so don't be surprised. So we're having this feast, and there's my goat, and had this bowl of broth, and I looked down, and there was a noodle. <laughs> and I thought, how cool is that? Jerry, look, I got, and then I realized, they don't have a lot of pasta out here in the bush of Tanzania. <laughs> Small intestines aren't bad either. But they came out and they sang and they danced and they put these necklaces around us and robes on us. They were so filled with joy in their, just in their poverty. And there was this joy and there was this unbelievable generosity towards us. Well, that's what he's saying. These Macedonians are like, they're going through very difficult times, but in all of their difficulties, in their trials, in their poverty, they're so filled with joy and they have just been overwhelmed with this rich generosity. Now, here's the question. Do you think they're joyful because they're generous or do you think they're generous because they're joyful? Or is it like this upward perpetuating, because of our generosity, we have joy and we have so much joy that we become generous, which gives us even more joy. I've mentioned several times this book, The Paradox of Generosity, which I said don't bother reading, but I keep quoting it. <laughs> last night I said, I promise this is the last time that I realized, no, in two weeks I'm quoting it again. Um, sociologists, not pastors, not church treasurers, not televangelists. These are sociologists, and this is their finding. People rightly say that money cannot buy happiness, but money and happiness are still related in a curious way. Happiness can be the result not of spending more money on oneself, but rather of giving money away to others. Generous financial givers are happier people. So while money cannot buy happiness, giving it away actually associates with greater happiness. These are sociologists. These are, and notice, I read this after we took the offering. I just don't want you to feel like I'm trying to you know, manipulate here. They're just saying, this is our finding. It's just true, it's the way it is. And the Macedonian churches had discovered this as well. And then Paul goes on in verse three and he says this about them. I testify that they gave as much as they were able. And I would guess that we would not be um, just like amazed at the amount. In fact, we would probably be significantly underwhelmed with the dollar figure of what they gave. Because they're in a time of great poverty and they, they gave what they could. There's a little three-word definition I've been using throughout the series for generosity, and then some. So they gave what they could, and even beyond their ability, and then some. They gave beyond what was required, beyond what was expected, beyond maybe what was even responsible. They gave in a way that was irrational, extravagant, what they could, and then even beyond. And it's not because they were guilted into it, and it's not because they were manipulated, it's not because there was this tearful plea of these people in Jerusalem. It says, entirely on their own. They don't have to be coerced on this thing. They don't have to be forced to do this. Entirely on their own, he says, they, they urgently 
pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this servant service to the saints. Paul says, they begged us. We were saying, like, that's enough. They said, no, 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 we want to be a part of this. Like, like this is a story bigger than our little story. We want to be a part of what God's doing. As I was studying this, all of a sudden, it, I mean, I know I'm, I'm sometimes dense. It just, it struck me. Here are these people in northern Greece, this province of Macedonia, and they are begging and pleading, let us help out people who live across the Mediterranean Sea in a different country that speak a different language, live in a different culture, and people we will never meet, ever, until that we see them in eternity. We just want to, if that's what God is doing, we want to be a part of that. Let me put you a little shameless plug in here. In the last month or so, you've been hearing us talk about Cornwall's endowment fund. This is exactly what we're talking about. It's putting something aside to bless people that we may never meet. To be able to give ministry opportunities for generations that are not yet even born. I mean, we sit in this room because a lot of people gave sacrificially and we're building on their shoulders. We wanna leave a legacy for other generations, for other people, people that we'll never meet until eternity to be able to bless them as well. That's what these churches in Macedonia were doing. They said, we wanna help them out. It was this, this privilege of participation, privilege of participation because God had called them into his family, allowed them to be a part of his kingdom, allowed them to have a, por a portion of his story. And he says, we, they said, we just wanna be a part of this bigger story that's not just about us. It's not my little world and my little stuff and my little life. I get to be a part of what God's doing in this world. And this even shocked Paul. He just didn't even see this coming. Verse five, they did not do as we expected. Paul said, I, I, I had no idea this was gonna happen, but this is key. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. First of all, they recognize how good God has been to them, how generous God has been to them. They come to God first. It's not about Paul pleading with them. It's not even about the need in Jerusalem. First and foremost, it's God, we're yours. Everything we have is from you. We owe everything to you. It's all yours anyway. What would you have us do? And from that, they were richly generous. Wow. And Paul just says to this church in Corinth, I, I want you to hear what these guys are doing. It's amazing how God's grace is flowing through them. And then he turns the attention away from the brothers in Macedonia, and he turns his attention to the church in Corinth. And he commends them because, because God has been doing a work within them. If you're familiar with the New Testament, if you're familiar with Corinthians, that church was a mess. I mean, they had found the grace of Jesus, but they were a theological mess, a moral mess, a relational mess, they were, they were a, a mess. And Paul writes them a letter to straighten them out. In fact, there's one of the letters that Paul wrote to the, to the church that we don't even have anymore. It's referred to as this, this letter, this severe letter, where he's like saying, you guys gotta get this straight, you gotta get this You even see this in 1 Corinthians. It's like, you guys are way off on this stuff. But look what he says to them now. But just as you excel in everything, wait, wait, well, are we talking about the Corinthian church? Because they were like in the remedial group spiritually. 
But God has done, they, they heeded the, the truth in the word and they submitted themselves to the Holy Spirit and he transformed them and they are growing and they are being transformed and they are becoming who God has called them to be. And now he says, you excel in everything, in your faith, you're growing in your faith, in your speech, the things you say, in your knowledge of the word of God, in complete earnestness, what's here, and in your love for us. He says, you are now, you're like now in the 95th percentile. You guys are at the, the front. You're, you're like a, a stellar example to other churches. And then he says, see that you also excel in this, and here's the word again, in this grace of giving. Like your Macedonian brothers are doing. I, you guys are doing phenomenal in all these areas. And in this area, I want you to grow as well. I want you to be the example in this area as well, that you would grow in this grace. And then he kind of like throws down, verse eight. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I wanna test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. No pressure, but your kid's sister's doing better than you. Like the Macedonian, no, 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 it's not a command. I just want you to hear what they're doing in Macedonia, and I want that to inspire you. It's not an obligation. He says it's a demonstration that this giving isn't like, oh, I have to in this duty. He says it's a demonstration that you understand what God has done for you, how generous he's been to you, and an expression of your love and your response to his generosity. And then he says, really, again, this isn't even about the need in Jerusalem so much. And it's definitely not about a competition with the Macedonian churches. We're not gonna do this pit one against another. And this is where the context of that verse that we've been coming back to a few times in the series comes in. He says, here is the real reason that we're generous. This is what really ought to motivate us. Second Corinthians eight, nine. For you know the grace, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Don't ever forget that you are the recipients of the amazing generosity of the Lord Jesus Christ who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life. That he has given himself and he has blessed you and let that be the motive and the reason that you give, that you're generous as well. And I like what he says in verse 12. He says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. He says, listen, the dollar figure is not nearly as important as the heart behind it. Like the amount is not as important, as, the attitude is more important than the amount. Like the, the, the approach, your heart, your thinking behind it. I mean, isn't that true when, when that story when Jesus is in the temple with his disciples and this widow lady comes into the temple to give her offering and she has, what, two cents? And Jesus is saying, hey, guys, guys, come here, come here. I want you to watch this. I want you to watch this. And this lady comes and she puts her two pennies in and he, and he turns to them and he says, she put in more than everybody else. Not the amount, not a lot of zeros and commas because she gave all that she had to live on. It was her heart, it was her willingness, it was her attitude behind that that caused that to be the case. Now, this is where we have to fast forward through a bunch of this stuff. That's why I really want you to read this on your own, especially chapter nine. He goes in and he uses this agriculture uh, illustration, the whole thing of, of 
sowing and reaping, planting and harvesting kind of a deal. He says, here's the reality. This isn't like something new, but the more seeds you plant in the, in the ground, the more plants come up. The more plants that come up, the greater your harvest. I mean, that's just like, not rock, I'm, not a, I'm not a farmer. That's just the way it works. It's kind of simple math. And he says, and you get to decide. Sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Sow generously, reap generously. It's just the way it is. You make the decision. No pressure, it's, it's your decision. And he says this. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I've heard it said God loves a cheerful giver, but he'll take it from a grump. But do you know why God loves a cheerful giver? God loves a cheerful giver because God is a cheerful giver. God is magnanimous. God is munificent. God enjoys giving and blessing and pouring out generously. And God says, when you are cheerful in your giving, you're just like me. You're a reflection of your heavenly father. That's why he loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful, it's like this hilarious giver, like, yes, I get to do this. Because that's how God is in his generosity. All right, one more verse we'll take a look at. And then he says, and again, and before this, he says, God, who is able to give you so much more, says, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's a, God says, can I trust you with my stuff? Because if I can, then I'm gonna give you stuff so you can pass it on, so I can give you more so you can pass it on, so your joy will cause you to be more generous, you're generous, will give you more joy, and you'll just continue on. He says, you get to choose. You get to choose how you wanna do this. It's up to you. Now, I'm gonna stop there with the, the Macedonian and Corinthian story. But whenever you're talking about the financial monetary side of generosity, this is the key. This is the key all throughout scripture is recognizing we are stewards, not owners. That is the key. If it's an ownership thing, it's mine. I'm going to hold on to it tight fisted. I'm going to keep it for me. If it's a stewardship thing, I have been entrusted with this. It has been given to me, it's not mine. I am just the one managing it. It belongs to some, it comes from somewhere else. It belongs to someone else. It's all God's stuff anyway. And I'm just managing his stuff. That is the absolute key on this whole thing. And there's an incredible picture of this in the Old Testament in probably the greatest capital campaign of all time. Uh, the tabernacle of God had been with him throughout the wanderings in the wilderness and up at Shiloh and now into Jerusalem. And David looks out of his palatial estate and says, why is God living in a tent? This isn't right. Let's build him a temple. And God says, hey, appreciate the thought, David. You're a man after my own heart. You write great songs, but you love war. Too much blood on your hands. You're not gonna build my temple. Your son can. And David says, great, Solomon will build the temple. What I will do is I'll raise all the funds. I'll get all the resources so Solomon can just build this thing. And he does. And you can read this in 1 Chronicles 29. It says that as they were casting this vision for this temple that they would build, that the leaders of Israel gave freely, willingly, wholeheartedly to the Lord. And the people saw that 
and they were inspired and they gave abundantly and generously so that they had so much stuff, they actually had to say, stop bringing the, the, the stuff. We've got enough, done, no more. And then David writes this beautiful, beautiful prayer, praise prayer in 1 Chronicle 29 of how all things are from God and glory and honor and wealth is all his. And at the end of it, he throws out this rhetorical statement, this question with his own response and answer to it. 1 Chronicles 29. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? And then he answers it. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. God, we're just stewards. We, we recognize that you have given us everything. Life and ability and wealth and prosperity. All this is from you, and we recognize it's all from you. It's all yours. And we just want to have Teflon-coated hands. No stick hands. God, you give it to us. We just want to use it for your purposes. What would you do with it? How would you, as a magnanimous, munificent God, how would you have me steward your stuff? And because of that, they were unbelievably generous. All right. That's the end of the sermon part of this time, but it's not the end of our time. I'm done preaching. Now I want to talk. Because I don't want us just to have knowledge about, oh, that's cool, I didn't know that about the Macedonian churches. I didn't know Philippi. I don't want us to just have knowledge. I want us to grow in becoming more like these people we're studying. And what would it take for people to talk about Cornwall Church the way Paul talked about the Macedonian churches? What would it take for people who are familiar with Cornwall would say, oh yeah, yeah, I might not believe what they believe or practice how they practice or any of that stuff, but you know what? They are so unbelievably generous and they are so joyful. When there's a need, they just step up and they just get, it's like they, they just kind of just keep pouring it out. And what if that's more than just some general agreement like, yeah, we ought to, we ought to, they ought to, the church, the, the board. What if we said, no, no, no. We want to apply this to our lives. We want to grow in becoming more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to have that reflection of our heavenly, generous heavenly Father who is munificent. That we want to apply this actually to our lives. And so today, we're going to end in a kind of a risky way. Like We rarely do this, but I want us, every one of us, to apply this to our lives. I want us in a very practical way to practice this in growing in generosity. And so I think, I think it's time for a second offering. Write it down. You're all shocked, but those of you watching online, you're glad you didn't come today. We don't do this very often. But today, because I want us to practice what we just heard, we're going to do a second offering. And here is how this is going to go. Every one of you is going to get an envelope. This is a part of this, this living out what we just learned. But we don't want you to put anything in that envelope. Because every envelope has a $10 bill in it. It's a reverse offering. 
you're gonna take this out of the offering basket and there's gonna be a $10 bill in your envelope. I want everyone to participate. Now, if you're watching online, <laughs> there's the 11 o'clock service. <laughs> because I want us to practice being stewards. Now, with this becoming more munificent, there are a couple rules. So before you get your envelope, let's go through the rules, okay? First rule, only take one, and if you have a problem with numbers, let's read it, one envelope. <laughs> Quiz, how many envelopes do you get? One. Okay, now some of you are saying, oh, but my wife didn't make it today. Tough. <laughs> yeah, but our kids are homesick. Tough. How many envelopes do you take? One. You take one envelope. One envelope is all. And some of you are going, quick, go get the kids out of Explorers League. This could be good. No, no, no. <laughs> you get one envelope. One envelope only, all right? And don't come back to the 11 o'clock service. <laughs> you only get to do this once. And don't try this again next week. This is a one week only offer, okay? From here on out, you go, oh, here's the new normal. We take things out. That's why we sit farther back. There's more in it. Okay, no, no. <laughs> and can I ask uh, two more little favors on this one? Don't call all your friends from Christ the King because we don't need 400 of their people in here filling up the room and taking our $10 bills. Let Grant and whoever do what they want over there. And one more favor. Can you please, please, not tell anyone about this because I want there to be an element of surprise for those who do come to the 11 o'clock service. And for those of you in Skagit, don't drive up here because you're thinking, I can make the tail end of the 11, don't do it. That's, that's, uh, that's rule number one. Rule number two, pray for God's direction. Because this is not your money. In fact, I want you to say, this is not my money. This is not my money. Yeah, yeah. This is God's money. On the back of it, it says, in God we trust. On this one, God is saying, in you I trust. I am entrusting my money to you. This was given for God's purposes. We're giving it back to you for God's purposes. God says, in you I trust. I want you to pray, God, what would you have me to do with this $10? How would you want me to leverage this for your kingdom, for your bigger story, to alter the spiritual landscape one life at a time? The third thing is to steward his money, to use it for his purposes. Now, I know some of you are already saying, okay, I'll take you to lunch, you take me to lunch, it all works. No, 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 no. If you wanna go ahead and manipulate this and work all the angles and get all your $10, listen, is your soul in hell for eternity worth 10 bucks? I'm kidding, okay, whoa. So we, Take your money back. Okay, no, I'm, 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 I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. There is one more rule with this though. No casino or lottos. Okay, some of you are saying, I know how we can develop this for the kingdom, hallelujah. Put it all on red. No, no. I want you to steward this money and let me just throw out some ideas. I, I trust that God, that you will seek God on what to do with this. This is like loaves and fish and I think God was gonna multiply this and the impact all throughout our country and our world. Maybe, you and your small group or you and your family say, hey, let's pool our money together. We can have a bigger impact that way. And you might even say, hey, let's pool our money together and add to it. Or maybe you're saying, here's what I'm gonna do. And, and then whatever God directs you. you know, maybe you say, we, we believe in this you know, organization. We just wanna help them out. You know, the Whatcom County Pregnancy Clinic and Getty Refuge, Young Life, whatever it might be. 
Or maybe you say, you know, there's, they're, they're drilling these wells in areas that don't have clean water. We want to help out with that. Or there's a missionary or, or maybe someone in your small group or someone you know is a family that's really struggling right now. And you say, you know, let's pool our money together and, and let's add some more and let's just provide Thanksgiving for them so they, don't even, they can have a full meal a month from now. Or maybe you're saying, you know what, I, I, we're going to get our money and we're going to put it in, a, in microloans in a, in a third world country so that, so that women can have jobs and it'll be replayed and it'll come over and again. Or maybe you say, I'll take this money and I'll take someone out for coffee and I'll buy their coffee with this money and I'll just hear their story. Engage in a kingdom conversation. Tell them my story. We, we trust that God will speak to you. This is his money. He's entrusting it to you. And we believe that God is going to use it in incredible ways. And the fourth rule is to report back. Because we want to hear what God said and did through you. And in your link, there's a, a green card that looks this way. There's actually five different ways. One is with this postcard. And if you want to send it back into us, it's going to take a 35-cent stamp. Use your own money for that. Or bring it and just drop it in the offering plate sometime. You can also text your story to 97000, 97,000. All this is on the card, by the way. You can text your story into us. You can email us at info at Cornwall Church. There's a place on the app that tells about our generous story, place online at cornwallchurch.com. We just want to hear and rejoice with you how God uses. We're so excited for the chance to practice this. And here's what I want you to understand, that this envelope, is a microcosm of what God longs for with our entire lives. Because God has given every single one of us an envelope in our life. Some of them are bigger than others. Some of them are more full than others. But the envelope that we have gotten in our life, in our abilities, in our wealth, in our resources, it all comes from God. And to be able to say, God, I am a steward. I wanna be munificent. I wanna be generous. How would you, as my munificent, generous God, how would you want me to steward as your munificent, generous steward, son, daughter, my life?